2: podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au
0: Solidarity forever!
3: Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, uh, 3CR's breakfast. We have breakfast all week and uh, we shine a light on a whole range of very interesting and uh, political and social uh, issues news uh generally uh a whole range of uh items that don't make it to the mainstream and as well as reflections on some of the madcap stuff that does happen on the mainstream scene and t- this morning we're going to uh take up some uh oh i've i've um spoken to Ian McIntyre. Ian McIntyre is a former, or sometimes uh, drops into 3CR, but he is a historian. He's a, a man that uh, delves into popular culture. And the reason for why I'm talking to Ian is because he and his uh, uh, fellow um, uh, editor, uh, Andrew Nett, have put out a a third volume in a series of uh, delving into popular culture uh, through 1960 to 1980. And the latest, called Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, has just been um, nominated for a Hugo Award uh, in the Best Related Work category. This is quite huge because of, the uh, U Hugo Awards is a stellar international award uh, for science fiction fantastic uh, stuff so I had a, a chat with uh, Ian about this uh, particular volume and also about the uh, content what it 's about what why they uh, took so much interest in this particular field uh, uh, Later on, we talked to Sister. Susan Connolly, about uh, upcoming national uh, rallies for justice for uh, Bernard Calleary, drop the prosecution of Bernard Calleary, and a call for a Federal Anti-Corruption Commission, because uh, we'll go through the particular case, as well as uh, where and when you can actually stand for justice over next week. Uh, And uh, we're going to follow that ...up with a fantastic session that uh, I went to at the Marxist conference... ...which was on over the Easter weekend. It was called "Unlivable Cities, the Politics of Urban Development... ...and it was given by Steph Price... ...who gave a fantastically amusing but uh, uh, fascinating uh, look into how Melbourne and uh it got to the state it's in at the moment and uh what needs to be done to make this into a livable rather than an unlivable city. Of course uh we uh heard the terrible news that uh the uh Australian government announced that it's not going to intervene in the Julian Assange Uh, Case that it believes in the English legal system and it refuses to intervene on behalf of an Australian citizen. If you want to know more about that particular issue, uh, there is a fantastic film out that came out on screens yesterday uh, Ithaca. It's a film that's been uh, made following the uh, work of uh, John Shifton and uh, Julian Assange's father uh, in his crusade to raise awareness of uh, and the need to support Julian Assange uh, it's, uh, If you want to know more about uh, what's going on and ha- w- how it's led to this terrible outcome at the moment about the extradition uh, case to send Julian Assange to the clutches of the evil empire, then the uh, it would be worth your while to actually go and see that film. Before we move on to the first item of the day, an important announcement.
4: Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples, and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall. Followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne Mayday Committee is a 3CR supporter. You're
3: on 3CR Breakfast with Annie, and uh, as I said, I had a chat with Ian McIntyre about his fantastic new book, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, which is... Uh, being put up for best related work in the new uh, the Hugo Awards. Uh, quite fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985. This is a, a section of history that you and your co-editor, Andrew Nett, Uh, quite in love with,
0: aren't you? Yeah, look, this is a period that we've been quite interested in. This is the third book um, that we've done on it. Um, The first was called Girl Gangs, Biker Boys and Real Cool Cats. And that kind of looked at the, I guess, pulp and paper pack fiction um, to do with youth subcultures. And then we did a second book called Sticking It to the Man, and that Again, focused on kind of pulp, paperback, mainstream genre fiction, which dealt with the radical politics um, kind of of the 60s and 70s, but kind of went back to the 50s to look at the precedents and antecedent and early writings and then went up to kind of 1980 to see how things developed. And um, basically, that second book was going to include some chapters about science fiction, But uh, the book just kept growing and growing and eventually the publisher said enough. (laughs) So we decided um, really that science fiction deserved a book of its own. But yeah, so we've done sort of, yeah, these three books now looking at kind of post-war paperbacks and um, yeah, different aspects of kind of counterculture, youth culture and radical culture.
3: And the reason for why you're doing this and the reason for why you're now honed in uh, on science fiction is because this particular uh, time of history was extremely important in changing or expressing in popular culture what was going on economically and politically and socially.
4: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, yeah, I mean. Popular culture always kind of reflects the wider culture, sometimes leads it, sometimes is kind of uh, behind it. And and I should mention, we've also covered, I guess, uh, unpopular culture (laughs) in that the more sort of marginal works and and, um, experimental works that kind of led the way. So, yeah, as uh, many people would be aware, the sort of long 60s, that kind of period from the 60s through to the 70s, was a period of quite marked sort of social upheaval and challenges to the established order. And this flowed through in, you know, all sorts of ways, but in one way was in the kind of fiction of the time. I guess in terms of the sort of radicalism on the one hand, you had authors who were trying to reflect on the times. You had also had, in terms of genre fiction, a lot of hacks really looking for um, topics to exploit so you know they were writing about different radical movements or whatever often in quite sort of conservative or right-wing ways and then you also had people who were members of the movements of the time and because publishers realized that there were audiences for this stuff a lot of people who had previously had to hide their politics or compromise their politics or simply just hadn't had opportunities to be published, now got those chances. In doing so, they sort of got to push the boundaries of science fiction and and fiction overall. So for some people, I guess their radicalism was kind of seen in expression, style and aesthetics, you know, so the sort of influences of the beats and modernism and new journalism Psychedelics non christian spirituality um, all that kind of had an impact on on both the writing but also book covers and then, as I said, you know you had authors who were part of or were influenced by sort of left wing anti authoritarian and liberation movements, and so they got to write about you know from the perspective of the movements they were involved in and kind of imagine new futures produce new takes on classic sci-fi tropes. So yeah, you had all these works, mainly from the mid to late 60s onwards, which challenged conservative literary sexual politics and other conventions. So you got these sort of thought-provoking, experimental and kind of politicised works, and eventually there were enough of them that they came to be dubbed uh, the new wave of science fiction. Some authors didn't really like to be pigeonholed in that way, but... Um, thinking of J.G. Ballard particularly. But, you know, the new wave sort of arrived. It created a lot of controversy within science fiction, but it it basically changed uh, the genre forever.
3: Yeah, and it changed the world too, actually, because now that we're in this period of history, much of the stuff that were contentious then are actually the foundations of what people take for granted today. In form as well as in subject.
0: Yeah, and totally, and things that we're defending today. Yeah.
3: I know that the um, title of your book, uh, "Dangerous Visions and New Worlds," are actually referring to two very important. Well, one was a an anthology, and one was a. Um, well, what was it? It was a a magazine, was it? New Worlds.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we sort of. Um... Other than making for a snappy title, it was sort of a way to pay tribute, really, to to those two sets of work. So, Dangerous Visions was an anthology put together by a science fiction writer and raconteur Harlan Ellison, which collected together, you know, a whole bunch of different people who were kind of pushing the boundaries in, you know, politically and socially and morally in other ways within science fiction in the 60s. So he put that together and then there was a follow-up called Again, Dangerous Visions. And yeah, this, this was kind of a showcase of a lot of the key writers of the period and I guess sort of marked uh, really the kind of arrival of these writers. So yeah, that was that was one of um, <laughs> the key writer books. But there, there were a number of anthologies at the time. There was sort of a shift I mean, there was still a lot of science fiction magazines publishing short stories and so forth, but there was kind of a shift more and more to the paperback anthology. And so um, Judith Merrill's England Swings and and there were a number of other anthologies at the time that that kind of were quite groundbreaking and it it became quite a popular sort of um, form of publishing short stories. So Dangerous Visions from Harlan Ellison had a big impact equally uh if not more so new worlds magazine which was a british um publication which had been around for some decades but um michael moorcock um again another science fiction writer uh he took over editing it in the 60s and um basically published from both the US and the UK you know a number of groundbreaking stories and he kind of broadened the magazine away from just being about science fiction. So it, it kind of took up a number of aesthetic and political issues of the time and included um, sort of experimental poetry and and other stuff. So that magazine then sort of became an anthology series itself. Yeah, it was kind of where a lot of people like John Bruner and J.G. Ballard, Moorcock himself and others sort of got their opportunity to get their more experimental and more radical works first published.
3: The um, ability to be able to alter the minds of readers through popular culture and create controversy, I suppose, was ripe for that period of history. I know that one of the um, uh, strings to the uh, fight was that uh, the decision to Uh, call themselves speculative fiction rather than science fiction as a way of separating themselves from the uh, earlier um, preoccupations.
0: Yeah, I mean, some some of the writers who were, I guess, part of the new wave were quite happy with the sci-fi thing. Others, yeah, they wanted to sort of mark this line where they, you know, they were kind of different to what they saw as sort of, prim and proper fiction of the 50s that was quite conservative and you know just had male kind of straight white male heroes who are off conquering planets um you know and had that whole kind of imperial sort of feel so the fact that a lot of this work I guess, was about inner space as much as outer space. A lot of it was about kind of near future utopias and dystopias, you know, set on Earth, kind of moved away from the session or idea of, you know, capitalist and technological progress as, you know, being intertwined and inevitable. So these people, you know, had critiques of of capitalism, of, you know, technology wasn't necessarily going to make you know, be the solution to everything and and automatically go in a positive direction and so forth. This 60s science fiction, like many aspects of kind of 60s radicalism, was a pushback against the conservatism of earlier periods. And so, yeah, that speculative idea, I guess, meant that people were trying to say, well, we don't have to just have these classic kind of science fictional types tropes and ideas. At the same time, you had a lot of science fiction that worked with things like, you know, your classic astronauts and so forth, except for in this case, you know, the astronauts were just as likely to be kind of bored corporate minions or kind of yeah. cracking under the pressure of kind of military rule or, or um, you know, as in the Forever War, kind of stuck in these interminable Vietnam-like battles, which, uh, you know, science fiction, you know, wars of the future that that kind of dehumanised them. And so, you know, you had people playing around with it. I mean, one of the books that really influenced me when I first started reading sci-fi as, I guess, sort of late primary school, early teens, was Ursula Le Guin's Word for the World is Forest, which is basically about a colonisation. You know, so rather than, yeah, the all-conquering... Um, noble heroes (laughs) it was sort of more from the perspective of the people who were being conquered and how they adapted and, and dealt with this invasion and you know as a as a young person you know I was aware of because of my family upbringing and the other kids I went to school with and stuff I was kind of aware of you know, the effects of colonisation and, and, you know, uh, in Australia. But that book really kind of got me inside, you know, to really think about it through a setting that was, you know, that was in outer space.
3: Yeah, yeah, she has a fantastic... There's so many of her stories that are so fantastic. Uh, one of them, uh, uh the idea of uh, gender roles in particular, she plays around with in a fantastic way. And also uh, the... Uh, other women writers uh, who, in fact, some of them taking male names and uh, uh, people believing that they must be, um, Alice Sheldon, for example, uh, using James hmm. Tiptree Jr. I've read things about her where people have said, oh, she must, it must be a male writer because women couldn't possibly write those kind of stories. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Yes,
0: and I guess. That, that was sort of a hangover in some ways from the from the 50s for them, and we have a chapter in the book about them. Initially, even amongst the more radical writers in the 60s, it was very male-dominated, but then as the 60s went on, you know, in keeping with kind of second-wave feminism in general, more and more female writers got published and got, Recognized and similarly challenged wider conventions, but also challenged those kind of conventions within science fiction itself, because science fiction has always particularly had this really healthy kind of fan culture. One of the challenges with doing this book was living up to, or trying to live up to, all that kind of history of debate and uh, analysis of these kind of works which which already existed so you know with our first two books really with the sort of fiction about youth subcultures there hadn't been much done outside of academic works that looked at those books and to an extent with our second book sticking at it- to the man, uh, quite a few of the right. radical books in the kind of crime, adventure, thriller, romance, and other kind of genres. They too hadn't really been written about as much, but this was a field that had been. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was a little bit of a challenge to think about how could we put a book together that would give a collection. So there's a number of contributors that we've got to the book that would give people who are new to this a sense of what was the breadth and the depth of the works that were going on, but also would cover those key writers, but would also offer something for people who are, um, you know, more longer term fans.
3: Uh, You're on uh, 3CR Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're having a chat with Ian McIntyre about his uh, new work, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, put together with Andrew Nett. Uh, They've been uh, put forward for a Hugo Award for Best Related Work, and uh, we'll just finish up the chat. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I, over the time, I've read quite a few of the various people that you talk about, like the uh, different writers. And each time I've read the, their books, there's been a sort of a fouchon of uh, excitement at the clarity that they're presenting, or even uh, most of the stories are... Uh, confronting or um, lead you down a rabbit hole. And it's uh, also, like you say, people like Philip K. Dick, for example, uh, makes an art form out of placing the uh, protagonists into the ordinary world, like they're ordinary people. They're everyday Joes, you know what I mean, as a general rule. And uh, this is political in itself. I mean, if you go back to see... C.S. Lewis is uh, the one about the man who goes to the moon. I can't remember what it's called. I'm bad with names, Um, but it's so um, esoteric and unfeeling (laughs) in its presentation (laughs) (laughs) Um, that I was surprised that it had been so shocking to people at the time that it was written. That's part of the old guard, right? And then, if you read some of the stuff that comes out of michael uh, Mocock um that they are rollicking yarns, and having learnt a little bit about him he's a working class, he came from a working class rackety uh, in a london kind of family and it it, it comes out in the uh, uh, iconoclastic nature of his language it's it's quite fantastic so uh, it's quite clear that this genre gave people the opportunity to express a really lot of stuff
0: yeah and I mean Moorcock's interesting because he, he was very much in the heart of the UK counterculture so not only was he sort of doing new worlds but he was also sort of hanging out with, with bands like Hawkwind and um, you yeah, sort know of playing a space rock band <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah and you know he was part of he was part of that, that kind of 60s radical counterculture you No, know, there was this kind of split of course you know uh, again, between, I guess, you know, what was v- roughly called the old guard and, and the new wave. And that was really kind of exemplified in 1968, this magazine, Galaxy Science Fiction, carried two advertisements. One had a list of authors who were you know opposed to the Vietnam War and the other had a list who were in favour. And sort of the people who put the list um together, you know, included um Judith Merrill and Kate Wilhelm, um, both of whom had been around for a while politically, uh, and, and as authors, but um, you know, their work sort of got new um you know, so they were sort of leaders within the kind of new wave and they had sort of thought well science fiction writers they're thinking about the future they're mainly going to be kind of progressive to some degree and then they were sort of like whoa okay so you know they found that a number of people refused to sign it and indeed sort of had this this ad you know that really exemplified i guess that split and that was a generational split that was going on for a lot of people but of course people sometimes focus a bit too much on the generational split of the area. So somebody like Judith Merrill had been around since the 40s, you know, so they weren't like, um, you know, a, a baby boomer. You know, yeah, they weren't sort of young. Um, you know, they, so, you know, this kind of left-wing current went back to some time. It was just now the opportunities were there more in, the, as I say, in the 60s and 70s uh, for a whole range of people to be who they were. And obviously, you know, the sort of the struggle around that continues clearly. But this was a period when things began to open up. And and some people, quite experimental and radical works were achieving massive sales. Like Samuel Delaney's um, Dahlgren, I think, sold half a million copies or something, you know, made the bestsellers. So, you know... That's the major impact.
3: And, and of course, we must uh, recognise that these things wouldn't happen if the capitalist system didn't decide that they were consumable items.
0: But, yeah, I mean, it took, I guess, you know, with, like most things, sort of people on the fringes to to push stuff. So, you know, Moorcock and New Worlds, you know, sort of publishing this stuff, Yeah, taking the risk. Kind of moving in and realising, okay, there's a market here and, and yes, we'll have to bend or whatever.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were entrepreneurial as well as fantastic writers, as it were. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that people should realise coming out of this array of books that you put forward. Things like the issues around ecology uh, are not new. uh, People have been writing about... Um, human uh, interaction with uh, the environment for uh, decades uh, so it's not a news story but also the obsession that uh, Hollywood has with dystopia comes from this period and also the uh, interesting speculation on um, uh, the ennui and uh, I don't know what this word means anome. oh anime
0: so anime. yeah I mean it's the kind of sense of, of uh, I guess, meaninglessness. Yeah,
3: it's <laughs> a great word. Yeah. Uh, and you also, the way you write it uh, in your introduction uh, of technologically drenched modern life. Technologically drenched modern life. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, which which of course, you know, um, has only become more so. <laughs> <laughs> That's so right. this in this period, you know, people were kind of mainly... Um, they were just babies. I guess kind of riffing on television and so forth mm. and the impact of of television um you know without yeah to the to the point where we we are now and of course on, on i mean on the ecologic i mean a lot of these themes again had a long pedigree, you know going back to the late nineteenth century earliest twentieth century um you know, with Frankenstein and Edward Bellamy and you know, and then later on sort of Alice Huxley and George Orwell and so forth, you know, looking at utopias and and dystopias, um, Catherine Perkins Gilmore's another one, you know, all, all to do with sort of feminism, ecology, um, authoritarianism, um, but, you know, with Huxley, you know, sort of how society could be, you know, manipulated through uh, I guess, kind of pleasure and hedonism <laughs> but again yes you you have uh again in the sixties and seventies this kind of critical mass of of loads of people writing about these things, and of course, with the um ecological stuff you know in keeping with the whole movement in in the early seventies um you know the blossoming of that movement, there was the kind of on the one hand, you had some critical books like Rachel Carson's *Silent Spring*, but on the other hand, uh, it was just as today we're going through a period. It was obvious the effects of um, you know of, of um, planetary exploitation. So then it was more in, the, in terms of things like pollution and acid rain and that kind of thing, it's, you know, it was in people's face. Now it's bushfires and floods. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly uh, You know, and, yeah. and, one of my, and again, another one of my favourite novels from this period and one that sort of influenced my outlook is um, John Brunner's The Sheep Look Up, mm. which... Great title. Um, yeah, and it's kind of, I mean... it's a whole series of vignettes which basically bring home, I suppose, the nature of ecological collapse in terms of it, you know, being this sort of series of cascading changes and catastrophes rather than this sort of single big bang, classic kind of apocalyptic moment that instead it's, you know, it's something that kind of creeps up on you. But but it also creeps up on you. And, And, you know, that novel in some ways, you know being from the early 70s it's got a number of things in it that are very much kind of period pieces i suppose you know but on another level the treatment of things like the organic food industry the kind of industries that grow up around coping with ecological damage yeah i just think it's you know it's still a, it's a really brilliant novel that just doesn't leave you necessarily with a with a great feeling of hope at the, <laughs> at the end and I guess that's something that you know when you were talking about the fact that dystopia is, has become so all pervasive as a genre and so popular and that a lot of the kind of dystopian themes that we s- still see today are uh, kind of grew out of this period so you know around ecological collapse, around nuclear war you know kind of social collapse and so forth
3: probably one of the most interesting elements about the uh, favorite uh, Hollywood trope about uh, dystopia is that they overlay it with uh, uh, cowboys and Indians yes yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, yes there's a lot of very western style <laughs> as in the western as, um, yeah. as the genre yeah for sure um, so one of the things that sort of looking at this stuff I' considered was that, you know, kind of dystopia, uh, I think a lot of its ability to shock has kind of worn off. I think probably in the, in the 60s and 70s, dystopia is kind of as warning and as, as a way of kind of trying to shock people into action was probably more effective than it is now, you know. In some ways, a lot of the dystopias have almost become kind of like cozies, <laughs> you know. And 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 in other ways, you know, they can easily kind of reinforce this idea that that doom and collapse is inevitable. It kind of reinforces that idea of capitalist realism or whatever, you know, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than than uh, the end of capitalism, and and often reinforces that kind of dog-eat-dog kind of capital relations after disasters, when, in fact, you know, often during disasters, people come together in the most amazing ways to kind of support each other, you know, collectively.
3: Well, well, you see, the thing about your book is that it's really fascinating that someone should take seriously and do proper work around discussing popular culture that's been so transformative. This whole area of fiction and popular culture in general has a huge effect on the mind state of the people in general. It's a great, great um, thing. And and in fact, your book's been nominated for your Hugo Award, which is just gobsmacking.
0: Yeah, look, um, Andrew Nettie, my Co-editor and myself, yeah, we're we pretty. Uh... The
3: uh, Australian word would be stoked.
0: Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> stoked. <laughs> stoked. Um, yeah, look, we we were very, um, uh, yeah, very pleased to see that it's been nominated for a few ago. Um, so yeah, we're sort of uh, the the Chicon is the is the big science fiction convention where they kind of um, announce the winners of the Hugos in September, but, you know, regardless of whether it wins or not, it's, um, you know, extremely gratifying and um, humbling. And, um, you know, we've got um, about 20 contributors to this, so I think it's a real, um, you know, hopefully a testament to, to all the work that they did as well.
4: Ask me for a clue And I will always tell you true Hi, I'm Sarah from Dash, and you're listening to 3CR. It's true. It's safer when I'm here with you. It's true.
3: And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, and uh, we've got Sister Susan Connolly on the line, and we're going to talk about the Rally for Justice for uh, Bernard Kelleher. Get a S- Susan. How are you? I'm well, Annie. Hope you are, and your
5: listeners too. Yes. Yeah.
3: Um, now, it's becoming uh, quite a uh, cause célèbre, really, isn't it, this uh, particular uh, case against Bernard Caleri. Uh And uh, now we're entering into the um, federal election, and it uh, really highlights the need for an anti-corruption commission, doesn't it?
5: Oh, it certainly does. You never said a crueler word if we don't get an independent commission against corruption to investigate the plethora, the huge number, amount of corruption in Australia. But this is an outstanding one. The whole business of the spying on Timor and now the this is the fourth year that this man is being uh, prosecuted. We're up to about number 70 in the hearings and those hearings are happening this week, the 26th, the 27th and the 28th of uh, February at the ACT Supreme Court. Uh, it's uh, the whole thing's been sent back to the Supreme Court by the High Court because all there's all this muddling around with the rule of law. Now they're talking about trying to get court-only evidence. There's two types of evidence in this trial. It's really wrong, and it's wonderful that so many people around Australia, as you say, Annie, are getting to know more and more uh, about this uh, terrible travesty of justice.
3: And, of course, Bernard was uh, made a uh, legal representative for the original uh, member of the uh, ASIO community, spy, uh, who actually was a whistleblower and has been caught up in this by uh, uh, default, really.
5: Well, he has, that's right. And he often says, while there was my name on the list of approved lawyers... When which he is an approved lawyer for the intelligence community and has served them well over years. Why was my name on that, he says, when it was well known that he was acting for the Timorese government? I mean, what a dilemma to put that man in. But the man of integrity that he is, like so many Australians, uh, he's stood up for what is right and he's suffering for it. And if we don't stand by him... I tell you what, we're, we're, uh, we're guilty too. We must stand by this. It's for him, but it's not only for him, it's for everybody in Australia. A rule of law should serve the people, not corporations and governments who are just trying to get in again.
3: Well, as you said, uh, the uh, politicians and high-ranking officials planned and conducted... Spying on the Timor Leste in 2004 during treaty negotiations yes. over over the gas fields in uh, the East Timorese Strait, and yes. uh, and that was at the behest of corporate interests.
5: Absolutely, well, it, it, it favoured Woodside. Um, and other companies that um, are close connections to Australia. And it, um, it just, it's just so wrong. I mean, Alexander Downer was the foreign minister at the time, and this is another type of corruption where these politicians go out of office and pretty, pretty well immediately get jobs with corporations that they have had interest in before, it's really wrong. There, something needs to happen about that. That there should be a big time limit before they can go and get jobs with uh, jobs with the boys. You know.
3: Well, they're calling it. They're calling it uh, in the national interests. Um, the uh, Stephen Charles uh, AOGC, oh, yes. He, he, he's quoted as saying the Australian government's performance in dealing with our poorest neighbour is one of men, mendicancy, duplicity, fraud, criminal behaviour, invasions of legal proficient, a professional privilege, contempt of court, denial of a fair trial and a failure to act as a model litigant. What they, he's saying is that they're riding roughshod over uh, our law, our legal system and our democracy.
5: That's right. And if your readers would like to hear to read the most fantastic book by that man, it's called Keeping Them Honest. It's just out, published by Scribe. It's only about $35. I got mine yesterday. I can hardly put it down. It makes me tremble, really, to know the corruption that's in this country. We need an independent commission against corruption. No, no, it's the biggest thing, I think. And 70% of people in the um, that poll that was recently um, uh, said... 70% of our people say, you know, let, let's have a proper oversight of how everybody... Uh, Operates in this country, including
3: politicians. Now, the the government spent four million dollars so far in this case. Uh, It has had had 60 hearings, yeah, it has 60 hearings and uh, some in secret. Um, And Kaliri is not allowed to see all of the government's evidence. This just does does not make sense. It's gobsmacking, isn't it? Is
5: this a work of fiction, you would really have to suspend... Oh, but it's the trial. It, it, it's
3: reality. Kafka's trial.
5: It's, it's reality in Australia. It's, it's a terrible. And for our children and grandchildren, we've really got to stand up for this. So, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there are demonstrations in Canberra, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, Perth, and Brisbane. And uh, if people want to find out about it, just do a search on um, Alliance Against Political Prosecutions. Alliance Against Political Prosecutions. Uh, you can do a Google search, no worries, and you'd get, find out the times and everything to go on the um, uh, to go to one of those demonstrations. Well, in Melbourne, the news in, in Melbourne, in yes. Melbourne, it's 5
3: p.m. Tuesday, State Library, uh, Swanson right. Street.
5: Fantastic. Yes, Come Melbourne. Melbourne, of course, is the rally capital of Australia. Melbourneites are fantastic, always have been getting out there and I'm sure people will get along at 5 o'clock to the the State Library and uh, stand up for these men. Uh, It's not just these men, it's standing up for our rights.
3: Well, you know, on the heels of uh, the federal government uh, refusing to step in for Julian Assange, this is just uh, icing on the cake, really.
5: Absolutely. And David McBride and Richard Boyle and Witness J, Witness J, who was charged, tried, found guilty and jailed. And no one knew. Nobody still knows. The, the, even the head of the jail didn't know why he was there. Now, this is Australia in the, you know, that was last year, 2021. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. So where's Australians who got to stand up for it? You want to live in a democracy? Fight for it. Yeah, brilliant,
3: really truly. Let's oh, go. Yes. Thanks, Ray. Right? Thanks for talking to us this morning.
5: Good on you, Annie, and good on through ya
0: I think 3CR is
1: the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. A week's solidarity, Bricky Team, listener, when, for a second week, big ideas, altruistic concern and exciting vision capture the nation's imagination. And the big ideas, altruistic concern, exciting vision, exciting news is there's four more weeks of the same to go. Four weeks of intellectual debate like the caring business class, hayseed and cheap shit coalition, accusing the Socialist Party of scare tactics by claiming a re-elected government would be the end of the world. The Socialist Party countering, accusing the coalition of scare tactics by claiming a Socialist Party government would be the end of the world. Each attacking the other's non-policies while the electorate was by the day becoming convinced it seems more like the end of the world, still facing 28 days of by the day. While anyone who might have an idea or vision can't get a look in, just big supremo Scuttlebem or Waston, a.k.a. Scummo and his lot, and socialist party supremo and would-be big supremo Anthony Uzi and his lot, with the Canberra press gallery hanging breathlessly on every word, which clearly explains the huge support for the undecided party, as the electorate not hanging on every word vainly searches for a third choice. And then Anthony discovered what living with COVID, let it whip means. A bipartisan bout of laryngitis would be a relief. As Scummo and Anthony were suddenly mostly in agreement, as true was he was confronted by the non-wisdom of Solomon, as China signed an agreement posing a major threat to peace in the Pacific. Uh, so China is now stationing trained killers on the Solomon Islands, Scumo, It might, it well might. It's a huge worry. Uh, so it hasn't. Uh, but as ScoMo said, it might. It well might. It, it's a huge worry. Uh, yes, big worry. Because has it already got train killers stationed all around the Pacific, in the Philippines, for instance? No, thank goodness. The U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world has train killer military bases there. Thank goodness. But, but are they in Korea? Uh, no, thankfully, the U.S. of has bases there. Thankfully, but, but also thankfully there's no Chinese train killers in Papua New Guinea, are there, which, which is even closer than the Solomons. No, no, the good news is that the U.S. ob and true have train killers there protecting us. Oh, and protecting the people of PNG. Uh, yes, good news. And true blue Aussie, there's no Chinese train killers here, are there? Absolutely not, certainly not. We have peace-loving U.S. bases and U.S. Marines protecting us from whoever might threaten peace in the Pacific. Although there was not absolute concurrence as the socialist shadow minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, declared allowing China to sign an agreement with the Solomons was the worst failure in foreign policy since World War II showing, apart from there's no hyperbole in politics, and especially in election campaigns, just how serious a threat this must be, how serious a foreign policy disaster, when we consider our invasions of Korea, of Malaya, of Vietnam, of Iraq, of Afghanistan, et al., a trail of military train-killer disasters, of Pine Gap and other nuclear targets, so we can but panic at this biggest disaster in foreign policy, so serious, the U.S. Ob sent its big Pacific train killer gun to the Solomons to set them straight. And what thanks did he get from the ingrates? They asked, how come his was the first official U.S. Ob visit for 37 years? How discourteous, how ungrateful, as if the U.S. Ob doesn't care about them, only cares about them now because, oh, disgraceful, what a ridiculous thought. Through all this, Mother Earth was kicking up her legs on the dance floor of the universe when Anthony declared, If coal mines stake up environmentally and, and then commercially, which is the decision for the companies, then they get approved. Without explaining how coal mines do stake up environmentally, or, or even commercially for that matter, maybe he meant coal mines stop up the environment. I'll, I'll just check that. No, no, he definitely said stack up environmentally, the stuff up being to his environmental credentials. This early Saturday, our brains are still coming to life, which probably helps putting up with the week that was. But let me go to what could well be Scummo's secret weapon, the amygdala. The what I hear? The amygdala, the brain's emotional processing center. See, a university college study in London into the amygdala's responses shows that the more people lie, the easier it becomes to lie. Ah, scummo, could this be your secret weapon? That is an outrageous implication. I have never told a lie in my life. Boy, is his amygdala working overtime this morning. Scummo described criticism of his captain's pick, transphobic candidate Catherine Dives Lower Than Low, as a pile on. Whatever that means, probably an attempt to balance her views, which are a pile of. This sensitivity carried to his telling the mother of an autistic child, he, Scummo, is blessed not to have had an autistic child, which, incredibly, the mother thought was, was a bit insensitive. When we know Scummo's church, his Christianity, which has driven his love thy neighbour approach to everything he does, like no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people, for instance, knows the more filthy rich you are, the more the dear baby Jesus loves and blesses you, the poorer the more the dear baby hates and unblesses you. And ditto, having a child with any disability shows the dear baby unblesses you. So Scummo was just expressing Christian truth and ensuring his place in paradise. Even if Anthony thinks it would be paradise to occupy the place, Scummo now holds on that side of the house as What Passes This Debate was confined to Lord Rupert of Wapping's pay-TV channel, getting no complaints from those who refuse to or can't afford to pay Lord Rupert to watch the same crap they already get anyway. No risk of tuning into the What Passes as Debate by accident, with the policy chasm exposed like on that no-proper-papers queue-jumping issue, with Scummo insisting his policy was far crueler and Anthony wasn't nearly as cruel and Anthony insisting he is just as cruel to those seeking refuge. And talk about spoil sports. As Scummo and Anthony both commit to zero emissions by 2050, our zero emissions are better than your zero emissions. Our zero emissions are better than your zero emissions. Spoil sports, infrastructure partnerships, True Blue Aussie, with disastrous timing, has called on them talk about unreasonable demands, listener, Call on them to show how they're going to get to their target. Goodness me, doesn't infrastructure, true blue Aussie, realise that would require them to have a policy and not just a statement? And we all know when the polluters and their political supporters say zero emissions... Zero emissions doesn't mean zero emissions. Fossils offset by a few trees, which may or may not exist. So infrastructure, Troublou is calling for them to show how they will reach zero emissions, which doesn't mean zero emissions. When reaching zero emissions, which doesn't mean zero emissions, requires no more policy detail than zero emissions by 2050 leading Neg to argue over important details like whose zero emissions are better zero emissions. So infrastructure mob, stop being a spoil sport. As Anthony was laid low, we The pejorative Dan government succumbed to pressure from the sundry chambers of profits and scummo and caring business class would-be state supremo, that lobster with a mobster guy, over raising COVID restrictions like isolation when we come into contact with a positive case. That lobster with guy attacked the government over delays in the triple O service, he said would put lots of lives at risk. Uh, and turning people who may well have COVID, may be contagious, loose is not putting lives at risk, lobster with. Isolation is putting caring business profits at risk. There is no comparison. It's a matter of priorities, which the majority of Dan somehow can't understand. And the chamber of profits, Paul Guerra, presumably for war against anything that gets between the caring business class and making a killing well, a financial killing, not a COVID one, said businesses will play their part as isolation is jettisoned and masks discarded. Now, you say isolation is causing staff shortages, but now they have to go to work. The whole staff could come down with COVID. And we must make sure the government doesn't let them use that as an excuse not to go to work. Everyone knows Omicron is a mild variant. Uh, But there's hundreds in hospitals, deaths every day, mild deaths. I hope you're not suggesting the caring business class and scumbo and the lobster with guy would put profit ahead of community health. Of course not. Well, he said business will play its part, and we can't disagree with that. After all, Scummo said, hallelujah, showing letting it rip, living with and dying with is the dear baby Jesus thing to do. And the restaurant and catering prophets True Blue Wes Lumpard, said it was a no-brainer, which on one definition it certainly is. The Clive Parmigina Party has resurrected that ad with Craig Killy the planet smiling at us under our next big supremo showing Clive's grasp of political reality because someone should remind him and Craig for that matter that to be big supremo you have to be a member of parliament which Craig our next big supremo won't be although top marks to Craig's ideological co-fossil George Christian to pollute son for running for that appalling Hoonson's one notion lot in an unwinnable position We'd hoped there were no winnable positions for that lot. Unwinnable position, and how cruel those who claim without the slightest proof that George is only running so he can staffle another hundred grand off the taxpayers on whom he's been living these past years. He, He just believes in the democratic process. Scummo and the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Makalia Kosh, the workers, denied their plan to resurrect the so-called omnibus smash the evil unions and workers bill was a plan to resurrect the so-called omnibus smash the evil unions and workers bill, especially the giving the boot the boot bit better off overall test, although they did qualify that just maybe the odd workers might have to be worse off overall if workers were going to be better off. And their denial, brackets qualified, looked a bit ordinary thanks to our old mate, the industry profits groups in us will cost the workers, who iterated that if workers want want to be better off, they have to be worse off. Caring employers couldn't make workers better off unless some workers were worse off and that's why the law needs to be changed. But the government most definitely did promise it would double the huge penalties already imposed on the evil CFMEU. And as we mentioned last week, supported by their wise, egalitarian High Court honours who know what a hard day's work on a building site is. Double. So workers say taking action over a safety matter would be fined lots and lots and lots more than their caring employer if the safety matter then happened to injure or kill one of them, showing just how lawless these construction workers are. Finally, though... Bad luck scummo's plan to create jobs for responsible workers, those exercising their God-given right not to join a union, announced with great flair in a Reeves factory, came a trifle unstuck when the very next day Reeves announced it was heading for Vietnam and shedding its lazy, avaricious, troublousy workforce. And a stroke of good luck for Scummo, the mainstream, panting, breathless Canberra press gallery, didn't see this as anywhere nearly as much a gaffe as Anthony's memory lapse. Oh, and finally, finally, aren't we all so looking forward to the next 28 days? Good morning.
4: the pretty smile that thinks you can hide, and it happens all the time. Isn't your mouth getting dry? Oh, what is it that you said? Crazy shit running through my head. Overthinking about that sting, Waiting into too jealousy. Normally, it wouldn't bother me. But why'd you have to be so mean? (laughs) Oh, I heard you going around, picking you up, putting me down. down. So what happens now? Do we fight for the crown?
1: This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Yeah. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up One Talks.
3: You're back with Annie on... 3CR Breakfast and uh, we're going to move straight along to a great little session that I went to at the Marxist conference last weekend. It was called Unlivable Cities, uh, the politics of urban development and it was given by Steph Price. It was just priceless, I'll have to say. So let's let's have a listen.
2: So I'm going to start um, at a place called the Corkman. Um, For most of its life, the Corkman was actually known as the Carlton Inn. It was built in 1854 and um, people say it was probably the oldest building in Carlton. Uh, The Corkman was not very charming. Uh, That was partly the nature of buildings, um, pubs in particular, built in that era. They were sort of characterised by their their plainness, their exterior plainness. Um, But also, it hadn't survived the 70s and 80s well. Um, It's sort of, almost its entire outside had been um, painted with Mission Brown, um, who anyone familiar with the or which remembers um, from the 70s, was um, somebody's brilliant idea that Mission Brown really encapsulated everything about heritage. um, Does not, it's horrific. Um, It was all over um, the outside. Um, And and some of its windows, um, this is probably from the 80s, some of its windows have been removed and replaced with, um, you know, glass bricks, also hideous. Neither did the pub um, have any particularly worthwhile social function, so it was located directly across the road from the Melbourne Uni Law School, um, and it was mostly used as a watering hole for um, Melbourne Uni Law students. But in 2016 when its owners, uh, developers who bought it a few years earlier, illegally raised it, leaving just piles of bricks and clouds of asbestos uh, in the air, it seemed that actually all of Melbourne was wounded. Uh, the Corcoran wasn't, wasn't beautiful, as I say, and it was really only used by a few people. But it wasn't theirs, uh, it was ours, and that was what the sentiment was. They turned it to rubble, um, brazenly, in the middle of the day, riding roughshod over the rules that are supposed to prevent things like that. Because what's a bit of tut-tutting um, and a tiny fine for a developer, a developer doing God's work, building things in a city, um, like so many others that measures its vitality by the number of um, cranes in the sky? And a developer who stands to make tens of millions by building on an empty city block um, and very little as a custodian of um, Melbourne's cultural heritage. But uh, you could make an argument that the depth of anger, which as I say was deep and fierce, uh, was overblown. This was one building in a part of Melbourne that most people would never even go and a part of Melbourne already um, almost exclusively shaped by the whims of um, the biggest uh, landholder and developer in Carlton, which is the University of Melbourne. The case becomes even stronger when you dig into what rules exactly the developers trashed. Um, Much as the state government at the time jumped up and down about the vandals destroying our heritage, the Corcoran was never going to be saved. Despite being the oldest building in Carlton, the site was at the time and remains today subject to a development overlay which allows for the construction of a 40-metre apartment tower. What the developers uh, squashed by knocking the whole thing down was merely the requirement that the tower that they were and still are going to build start behind the facade of the existing building. The corkman was always on borrowed time. Um, but I'm going to say it wasn't an overreaction. It was very, um, uh, it was a reasonable response um, because what the whole affair uh, was, was just a moment that really brought to the surface uh, the grinding reality that we know because we live it. Uh, the reality that the shape of our cities, these very human creations, uh, feels largely outside of our control. And it gave a face to what's usually just this intangible sense that the city is the way it is because of perhaps this seemingly um, natural operation of unknowable and you know, unalterable forces. For a bit, as Melbourne sees, the Corkman gave those forces um, a name and a face, and made very clear that our cities are shaped by people who make decisions at every step to maximise profit, uh, in a system that lives and breathes that pursuit. Of course, the city is not a predetermined fact or a natural phenomenon, or shaped by forces that we can't know, and it's not only the outlandish antics of developers that shows us this. The rich history of struggle over the form and fabric um, of the city also punctures this facade cities are sites of struggle certainly um, because obviously cities are where capital and the working class is concentrated Uh, any movement worth its salt wants to make its claim in the city and any government that wants to sort of prevent or impede struggle would seek to block access to the city and you know there's recent laws passed in new south wales that seek to do that very thing but in the battle over who gets to shape the daily quality of urban life Cities too have been the object of that struggle. The best and most well-known example of course is the green bans, in which construction workers organised in the BLF, under the leadership of Communists Jack Mundy in New South Wales and Norm Gallagher in Victoria, refused to demolish things that they thought should be protected um, and build things that they thought didn't need building. They were concerned to preserve heritage buildings, green space, public housing. And really just block all-round shit ideas, like, according to Liz Ross, uh, who's written one of the definitive histories of the BLF in Victoria, a car park and 24-hour restaurant in the Botanical Gardens. Who knew? (laughs) Good job. That didn't happen. (laughs) Um, The New South Wales BLF was regarded as the most powerful town town planning agency operating in New South Wales at the time it was active. The list of things saved by the union bands is too numerous to reel off, but it includes many bu- buildings that still stand, others that we fight to retain, and others still where the battle has been lost. Um, most devastatingly, I think we'd say, would be um, the battle for Millers Point and the rocks in Sydney. Uh, the, the ruling class of New South Wales has this, had this particular part of Sydney in its sights um, for some time, but a plan to clear out its working class population and redevelop the area which sits right up against the harbour Um, was defeated by the BLF and residents in the 1970s, only to be carried through uh, 40 years later, quite recently, by the New South Wales Liberal government. A government like governments throughout Australia that will no longer abide the travesty of prime harbourside housing in the case of Sydney or in the case of Melbourne, um, creekside housing, um, which, you know, I I think is quite nice. So in Victoria, the the site of, of the sort of equivalent battle would be um, along the Merry Creek in, in Northcote. Governments no longer abiding by um, this type of housing being occupied by workers, new migrants and the poor. In new, new South Wales, the dispossession of the residents of Millers Point and the serious building nearby pocketed the New South Wales government, uh, the best part of a billion dollars. Far from accepting the city and urban renewal, which only ever means out with the poor and in with the rich, uh, far from accepting that such things are an unstoppable wave The BLF built a movement on the very basis. The city does not simply appear before us. It is built and lived in by workers, and it's these people who should say what it looks like and how it works. They should lay claim to what Marxist geographer David Harvey describes as the right to make the city more after their heart's desire. Jack Mundy um, described it as an assertion that we are not just robots directed by developer builders. More and more, we are going to determine which buildings we will build. Uh, the BLF understood the battle to improve the condition of the working class was as much a battle about the city as anything, saying there must be, in all this city area, provision for working class people for people of lower middle income to be able to reside in the area. It's not much good winning a 35-hour week if we're going to choke to death in planless and polluted cities where rents are too high, where ordinary people can't live. But it wasn't only the unions staking claim to the city. Um, at the same time, as students and intellectuals began pouring into the inner cities during the 60s and 70s, drawn in by mass tertiary education and the political foment happening uh, in the cities at the time, residents' action groups started springing up and they too were intent on intervening in the city. It was a time of pitched battles over freeways, parks and slum clearances. So we started in Carlton and in fact, the suburb of Carlton itself exists today as it does um, as a result of the fights at this time. So in 1969, the Housing Commission in Victoria was on a mission. It had plans to renew nearly one square kilometer of Carlton. And Carlton is in total size two square kilometers. So fully half of Carlton was in its sights. It declared these areas um, slums and ripe for renewal. And of course, when they said renewal, they mean what governments um, mean today when they say uh, renewal, which is to demolish the housing and move out the residents. Many of the poor and working class um, residents of Carlton weren't interested in moving off. And they rejected the slum declaration and fought on at least one occasion with shotgun in hand, uh, to keep the Commission out. You could get away with that sort of thing at the time. Um, uh, they were joined by the students and academics who weren't keen on the gritty and bo- bohemian suburbs they'd been drawn to being turned over to the brutal modernism of the Commission's prefab concrete housing and the towers that we all know today. It was in Carlton in this defeat that the Housing Commission's decades-long slum reclamation program came to an end. And today, as we'd all know, the slum houses are some of the most expensive in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and the towers and concrete housing so reviled then, uh, we defend today now from ever-present threats. Okay, so that's a bit about struggle, which is certainly one of the forces that imposes itself on the city. I just want to look a bit about what we have on the other side, which, as is often the case under capitalism, is an array of often competing capitalist interests. So you have the capitalists that build skyscrapers, which are totally different and opposed to the capitalists that build low-rise housing estates. Their interests are largely opposed and they're often battling with each other. You have the capitalists that build roads. You have other ones that toll the roads. You have capitalists that run the public transport and there's obviously different intersections of interest there. You've got the businesses in the cities, the businesses in the suburbs. You've got the landowners and the the people that run their business in the shopping centre. So a whole array of different interests that mean that urban development under capitalism is necessarily chaotic. It's also thoroughly irrational, considered against even the most basic measures of human need, to say nothing of the possibility that we might build our environment in such a way that elevates our dignity. Of course, nowhere is the sheer irrationality more evident than in considering how the interests that determine what happens in our cities have responded to the climate crisis. So think about this. Up and down the coasts of Australia, right now houses, absolutely brand new houses are still being built in areas that all sensible science says will be inundated by a rising sea by the end of this century. And well before that, vulnerable to huge storm surges. A group of researchers recently bravely asked a group of developers and property investors to anonymously explain how this could possibly be. Their answers were unsurprising but disturbingly candid. This is one um, such um, champion. The change, and the change presumably being catastrophic sea level rises, isn't going to come through now or in the next two, three, four or five years, long-term thinking. (laughs) It's going to come through gradually over the next 50 to 100 years. And if that's the case, do I really need to care? I mean, it's a terribly selfish thing to say, so self-awareness. But as a property owner, do I need to care? If you look at Sydney, huge swathes of its urban growth area are on floodplains. And the current rule is it's just fine for developers to plant estates on those areas that are supposed to flood the sort of mega floods one in every hundred years. These are the very same areas that have had two such floods in the last five years. And the New South Wales government just scrapped a proposed, not even introduced, but scrapped a proposed requirement that developers prepare hazard risk profiles for the new estates in areas that could be subject to flood and fires. And the developers pushed back hard and it's been withdrawn on the basis that it undermined the economics of delivering housing. So in Melbourne, which is the fastest growing of all of Australia's cities, most of the growth is happening on the fringes, where about 100,000 people settle every year. The urban boundary has been expanded three times in the last 20 years, and two of those times were by a Labor government. And it's always at the behest of the developers and landowners who reap huge windfall profits when native grasslands and farmland is rezoned residential. And in most cases, it's as if the housing estates put there have been built as some sort of dark experiment, like a Black Mirror episode. Well, how could we design new housing estates so that we really just push this climate change thing up a notch? And at the same time, what if we made it that the people that we put in those estates feel the effects the worst and have the least ability to mitigate? So if you're going to carry out such a sick experiment, you would build a patchwork of disconnected planned communities well beyond the public transport network, with little in the way of jobs, shops, hospitals or any community infrastructure at all. Right now, if you live on the urban fringe, less than 5% of jobs are accessible to you within 60 minutes on public transport. And a similar proportion accessible by 30 minutes if you have a car. So what it means is if you have a job, you will be driving and you will be driving for a long time to get there. And because the estates are designed usually with only a couple of ways in or out, the congestion that you experience probably starts almost from uh, the, the second you leave your driveway. You cannot do any of the things that you need to do to sustain yourself or your family without a car. And then there's the houses themselves. So prices for the houses are going up, but the blocks themselves are getting smaller. So the developers can carve out more from each land parcel. And if you look at a sort of um, heat map, you know, people who do infographic, infographic maps about what the city looks like, the, there's a sort of, you know, an inner ring of inner suburbs that are sort of smaller blocks, and it widens out into the sort of middle ring, but it shrinks right back in in the, the urban growth areas. So, you know, much more closely aligned to the sort of inner, the, the Northcote-type suburbs, far, far um, out into the grasslands. But at the same time, the houses are getting bigger which means that the house takes up m- most of the block, leaving not much room for a backyard, and the rates of imperviousness in some of these areas is as high as 90%. And imperviousness um, basically means a hard surface that you know, water can't soak into, and, and hard surfaces on um, these housing estates are likely to be concrete, and they trap the heat and, and release it back out, increasing the temperature in these areas significantly by many degrees often, and it will only get worse over time. Canopy tree cover can help, but tiny backyards can't accommodate uh, big trees. And the developers are not putting them in the streets, nor often are they building the parks that they promise uh, in their ads. If you live on one of these estates, you will absolutely need an air conditioner just to be able to inhabit uh, your house. But the exacerbation of the heat island effect caused by the imperviousness means that, at times, it will be too hot for your air conditioner to work. So who knew? It can actually get too hot for air conditioners to work. And it's not that far beyond the sort of temperatures that we will see regularly in the not too distant future. So over 48 degrees, apparently, uh, air conditioners will struggle to work. And in addition, because they're building the houses gutter to gutter, there's no room around the sides of them um, for the air circulation that air conditioners... Need. It sounds a bit like a sort of strange lesson in weird things you sort of didn't want to know but this is actually to the extent there's any growth in Melbourne this is what it looks like um, and this is what we're setting the world and people up for. So heat he kills more people in Australia than any natural disaster and actually most um, heat related deaths happen in Victoria.
4: Wow,
3: <laughs> unbelievable! We'll hear the rest of uh, St- uh, Steph Price's unreli- uh, unlivable cities. She gave this speech at the Marxist conference. Fantastic stuff! If you want to get the rest of the Marxist conference, the uh, they put them up on all the sessions up on uh, podcasts. So, uh, but this is particularly fantastic.
2: Okay, so the title of this talk is "Unlivable Cities. And I presume that this is a riffing off of one of the catch cries of urban real estate speak, livability, which is a deliberately benign way of openly acknowledging that it's better to live in some parts of the city than others. In other words, the benefits and costs of urban environments are unequally shared. So I've touched on it a bit, but I want to um, look in a little bit more detail and a few more examples about what exactly it means and what it looks like to be low on the um, livability index. I don't think you can fall off the livability index. Though life and death is a binary, um, the index doesn't recognise it. You can be right down the bottom, still still going. Okay. So the closer you live to a pokies venue, the more likely you are to gamble, to lose and to experience all the ill effects associated with gambling addiction, which includes a hugely increased risk of suicide. If you live within one kilometre of the supermarket, you will likely be in better health and experience less disease than people who live further than one kilometre from the supermarket. And this association is strongest in working class areas. Access and proximity to green open space is associated with better social connections with those around you, better sleep, improves physical and mental health, and again, a reduction in disease. Even the presence or absence of street trees in your neighbourhood has an impact on the material conditions of your life. People are more likely to walk when there are trees and they're more likely to talk to their neighbours. How does this play out in um, Melbourne? There are four times as many pokey venues in the outer north of Melbourne as there are in the inner east, say Burundara for instance. In the urban growth areas, only one quarter of houses are within one kilometre of a supermarket. And the one kilometre matters because they know that one kilometre is essentially, it's the maximum that most people will walk to access things. And so if you're not within one kilometre of a supermarket, again, the only way you get there is is via a car. Green space. As one Google reviewer astutely commented when reviewing a park in Hawthorne, And the first comment was, rich people get better parks. While the distribution of parks and other open spaces is mixed, so some wealthy inner suburbs have comparatively few parks per person, but they have distinctly better tree canopy coverage. The evidence shows that parks in working class suburbs in Melbourne are much less likely to have the things that make parks nice and encourage the actual use as parks. So trees, paths, benches, shade and water. The tree canopy data shows that the parks in the western suburbs have less canopy tree coverage, and so canopy trees are obviously the big trees that create shade, less canopy tree coverage at 6.2% in the parks in the western suburbs than the industrial areas of the eastern suburbs which sit at 7.7%. So this means that you're much more likely to find yourself sitting under the shade of an old gum tree if you're standing outside a factory in Malvern for instance. There's no factories in Melbourne, but there's obviously industry in the east. Then you are if you're standing in a park in sunshine. So I want to talk a bit about public infrastructure and in particular libraries, just as an example. So access to public libraries in Stonnington, which takes in Malvern, Tuorak and Peran, there's one library for every 40,000 people. In Melton, which is in the outer west, and Dandenong, which is in the outer southeast, there's currently one library for every 90,000 people. In about 10 years' time, with Melton part of the urban growth corridor and expanding rapidly, the figure will be one library for every 160,000 people. By this time, there will be four times as many children living in Melton as there are in Stonington and half the number of libraries. But, fear not. If you live in one of Melton's urban growth zones, chances are the only library-like thing anywhere near you is a library access point. An access point if you didn't know, is a vending machine uh, run by Lendlease. It's a bad replica of the most basic function of a library. You can collect your pre-ordered books from the machine without ever talking to a single person, let alone making a social connection. There's no building, of course, so no public space. Libraries obviously being one of the few remaining spaces that you can go and stay without being asked to buy anything. There are no shelves to browse. There's zero prospect of serendipitous discovery. Um, which librarians will know is amazing, you have to marvel at their capacity to strip a library of everything that might possibly make a visit to one a meaningful experience. So you contrast the Lenley's book vending machines to the approach favoured for a little while by a reforming mayor in uh, Bogota, Colombia, who built grand and beautiful buildings in some of the poorest areas of the city, where the possibility of building a library was more than a utilitarian exercise in distributing reading material, And so he said, there was an emphasis on not only that libraries were functional, but also that they had to be majestic, in homage to every child and every citizen who would enter there. It's unlikely that any child feels lifted by the majesty of the lend-lease vending (laughs) machine. And of course, nothing about the the way our cities work should lead us to believe that there is any intention at all for a working class child to feel uplifted or inspired um, by their built environment. It's why children of the rich attend schools whose building are imposing and monumental and sit on acres of manicured playing fields while others learn in tin portables that crowd out the school oval. It's why developers are reaching new heights to cater for the ultra-wealthy with what are called super prime. There's a new thing, super prime luxury apartments. So it's beyond sort of ordinary luxury, including one in London, which has a rooftop beach. While for the rest of us, it was the great reform of 2017 Yes, not 1917, it was the great reform of 2017 when the Victorian government decreed that all habitable rooms must have a window, in fact, to be habitable. <laughs> because apparently that wasn't clear to developers who were building apartments hand over a fist with windowless um, bedrooms, apparently one in two before the, um, the rule changed. It's why the New South Wales Community Services Minister described the final clearing of Millers Point and the rocks as fair because what what's unfair so unfair is not playing by the rules of the game and what are the rules of the game they are that property must be put to its highest value and that beautiful things that we have created are not really for us to enjoy after all like the sound of a tree falling in a forest where nobody can hear it if it is a public tenant looking upon the harbour bridge from their flat and not someone who has paid the fair value of that view can we even say the, say the bridge was seen at all <laughs> to sum up So there there are challenges that humanity faces which we don't have easy answers to, even under a system controlled by the majority. But how to make cities that are fit for the people who live in them and the people that sustain them is not one of those challenges. Capitalism is the impediment to the making and remaking of cities in a way that provides comfort and beauty to all in equal measure. It's astounding how much is known about how our buildings, cities, parks and nature can improve or diminish our lives. In the very first strategic plan prepared for the city of Melbourne in uh, 1929, so nearly 100 years ago, the authors knew that children needed parks to be healthy. Uh, They knew what was the minimum park space that each child uh, in any given neighbourhood would need and they knew what was the maximum distance um, that a child would be able to walk to get there uh, 100 years ago. Uh, You could spend many years reading nothing else but the minutiae of how cities should work. It's known for instance what the ideal um, depth of a front garden is to encourage conviviality amongst neighbours but allow you know, retreat for, for your senses. It's known what the ideal um, footpath width is to encourage walking. You know how many curves are reasonable before a walker aborts. Look at the diagrams. The, the how they build the footpaths in the estates is um, is unfriendly to walkers and there's too many curves. Um, and there's people who who know about this. There's people who know about all of this. They know what type of street signage could help people with dementia navigate their neighbourhoods. And it goes on and on and on. But we will not win livable cities through better planning or latching onto new ideas that they cut that that some people carve out within the system. And you know, I think about, in my work, we're you know, always hearing about this sort of like wild new ideas that people come up with to um, address the housing crisis. And you know, examples are, why don't we put people in micro-shipping containers and stuff <laughs> you know, When in fact, we figured out a long time ago that shelter is best provided by houses, so why don't we build houses? We will win livable cities, uh, cities that are fit for us when we take on capitalism and when we win back the world. Um, we need to fight for reforms, yes, but a truly beautiful city is one teeming with workers, moving together in the fight for bigger change than that.
3: Fantastic. Fantastic talk by Steph Price at Marxist about uh, unlivable cities. Before I go, uh, there's a game... Of cricket, an important game of cricket being played tomorrow at uh, Fair Barn Park in Maribyrnong, Oval 6. It's uh, to celebrate the freedom uh, that uh, refugees are now experiencing uh, as they've been slowly but surely left out or led out of detention. Uh, it's a game that's been initiated by refugees that they are uh, asking for people to come uh, we also play in solidarity with hundreds of refugees who remain locked up in indefinite detention in Australia, they say. Bring a chair, drinks, plate of food to share. We can break fast together during Ramadan. Uh, this is coming from the refugees themselves. Sunday, April the 24th, 2pm, Oval 6 at Fairban Park, Maribyrnong. Bring a chair. Everyone is welcome. If you want more information, O four double one O eight nine two oh nine. That's O four double one O eight nine two O nine. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents Adios Amigos.